This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us on this episode of Afternoons. A bit of a health special. We were looking at weight loss jabs following the availability increase in the UK. But what about here in the UAE? Who are they suitable for? Is obesity really a disease? And addressing the many questions we had about side effects too. Marking PCOS Awareness Month with a leading gynaecologist addressing some of the treatments, the hot topics and some of the big confusions around this increasingly common condition. And it is that time of the year when we're packing the bags for our loved ones heading off to university. Empty nest syndrome. While it does start with them leaving home, it can lead on to conversations around identity, marriage and finding your purpose. We were speaking to a psychologist on the topic and it was Dr. Katrin Yarn on hand for pets and vets. We were asking, is it safe to kiss your furry friend? And what should you do if your pet goes missing? Plus, of course, your questions answered too. talking health this hour and every so often a drug comes along that has got the potential to change the world sweeps the headlines creates controversy and also gets a bit of confusion as well medical specialists say the latest to offer that possibility the new drugs to treat obesity such as ozempic we go monjaro and more on the way they've been in the headlines in the uk over the last couple of days in terms of availability and they are used primarily to help with obesity and those with diabetes but for the last few years we've seen A lot of celebrities coming out of the woodwork saying they've used it to reduce their weight. But how safe are they? We're talking now to Dr. Rihila Bhatti, consultant endocrinologist at Genesis Healthcare. And I'm so happy you're here because I feel like we're... I I want to invite a a balanced discussion around this. Um, And I'm curious if we can kind of get to the bottom of pros, cons, what we need to know, suitable candidates. We've had a number of messages on this topic as well. So they were specifically designed to address diabetes and obesity as a disease, which is something you're really keen to talk about, obesity being a disease. So can you explain how they work in the in the body, doctor? Thank you so much, Helen, for having me you're today. You're very welcome. So first of all, I think we need to realise that obesity is a chronic disease. So it's a disease, it needs treatment. And we actually now call it adiposity-based chronic condition. So you have lots of fat tissue, and that's what's causing the problem. So... How does these medications work? So let's call them simply as gut hormones, yes? So these gut hormones, normally how they work is our gut produces these hormones and then it goes to the pancreas, it will reduce your insulin resistance, it will go to the liver and it will say to it, you need to work better to use that insulin to change the glucose into energy. And it goes to your brain And in certain centers, it will actually balance your appetite and hunger regulation. Then it goes to your heart as well. There are receptors everywhere in the body. And what it will do is it actually improves the functioning of the heart and it reduces the cholesterol. And that's what how the normal gut hormones work. And we know that once you gain weight, your adipose tissue is high. Mm -hmm. These gut hormones are not working. So we are just replacing them. In simple words, people who don't have insulin because their pancreas are not working, you don't tell them, okay, you need to do something else, lifestyle change, and it will get better. doesn't work that way. You give them insulin. Same way, people who have obesity or related metabolic conditions, you, they give them these medications 
So it actually works in this way and helps them getting metabolically healthy. I've just had a message on Instagram about this, asking about treatment when it comes to PCOS, which is we're also addressing on the show today. Is that something that you found to be beneficial? We've been talking there about you know an older drug, met, you know metformin, there being used for um, insulin and also weight management. Could could this be a good option for women with PCOS who are battling their weight? That's a really good question because the underlying problem with PCOS is insulin resistance, and there are small randomized control studies where it has shown, especially liraglutide up to 1.8 milligrams, when it is combined with metformin, it really helps in patients with PCOS. And that's what the latest European and the American guidelines are recommending, that we should consider the GLP-1 or these incretin hormones to help with the weight loss to help the PCOS, because it's a complication of obesity. I think one of the big controversies has been about the abuse of these drugs. And I think for... um, for quite a while in Dubai, anyone who's just a little bit chubby has kind of thought, you know what, I'm going to use this to lose, you know, three, five, ten kilos. Is that something you've had people coming into clinics saying, you know, am I a good candidate because I've just, my weight has plateaued? So that's completely right. One thing you need to remember is that these drugs, they are licensed when your BMI is above 27. Okay. But there is lots of research going on that probably BMI is not a true indicator of your obesity because somebody can have a low BMI and they can still have adipose-related complications. So I always advise patients that we need to actually have a holistic approach, find out what complications they have and what you're trying to achieve. The main thing is that these anti-obesity medications, they work on your body composition. They work on your visceral fat to reduce that. But you have to do it in conjunction with other lifestyle modifications, behavior therapy, nutrition. So it's like a multidisciplinary team approach. Mm -hmm. So I think you need to consider everything. It's not a quick fix. You should not consider it's a quick weight loss drug. And I think that's where the danger is because they can cause complications or they can have their side effects. Let's talk side effects. I've just had a message going, what are the side effects of Azempic? So what has been noted, whether it's in studies, it's anecdotal, you've had people coming into clinic talking about. So if you look at the data from Ozempic, from Vigovi, from Monjaro, although some of these are off license for weight loss, but all of these hormones that show that side effects wise, they can cause a bit of nausea, okay, because remember that it slows down the gut. So the gastric emptying initially is affected, it can cause that, or it can cause constipation or diarrhea. But it happens in all the data in five to 7% of patients, 93, 95% of patients should not have any side effects. But it's important that you get it done under supervision of your doctor. And is that coming on the medications and coming off as well? It's coming on the medications, what you're trying to achieve out of it, and then coming off the medications as well, who can and who cannot come off the medications, just like diabetes medications. There are, um, I don't know if if strength is the right word, but there are certain... I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, levels of of intensity of these medications. How do you decide what patient needs what and and how can you ultimately amp up their medication and then bring them off in a safe way? So that's really good that, you know, you have to have a look at what problems the patient has, what is his history, what are the eating habits, what is the lifestyle. And I think all of that adds what medication you choose to start them on, what will be best for them. Mm-hmm. So it's very individualized approach, which is patient-centered. Once we do that, 
Then you decide how the patient has responded. We always start all these medications at smaller strength because remember, the body is not used to it. So you want the body to get used to it so the patient does not have any side effects. Then you escalate the dose and then you decide based on what the body composition is, what the other complications were, which dose you want for this patient. And depending on their response as well, what we call as either early responders or late responders, because some people will, every person is different. So they will respond differently to these medications. And once they are on these medications, once they have reached their individualized target weight or body composition weight or the other comorbidities, whether they have or they don't have, it depends on lots of factors. And then you decide with your doctor, okay, is it safe to come off the medication or do I need it long term? Well, let's talk about that because what happens when you do come off? And let's say you're looking at it from, let's let's park diabetes, let's, let's park PCOS, let's look at, you know, pure obesity, someone mm. who's looking to lose 20 plus kilos yeah. and they reach that goal within, I'm just plucking a number out of the air, five months, for yeah. example. Um, they've got their goal, you know, their BMI is now considered to be normal. Hmm. What happens when they come off? Is that appetite going to come back or their desires? You know, are we going to get a hormonal, hormonal rebalance in the gut that will get them, you know, head off, so, head off to spinny straight away? Yeah. So uh, what will happen is just like with any of the other management. So, you know, you go on a diet, you lose weight, you go back to your normal diet, you will regain because that's the normal physiology. You do bariatric surgery, people will lose weight. You need a lot of lifestyle change, behavior therapy to maintain that weight. And post-leave gastrectomy, it has shown that weight regain can happen where we use some of these medications. The data has shown when you come off the medications, the weight regain will happen. So we are theoretically saying that you probably need these medications long term, just like with diabetes medications. But like in diabetes, we are talking about diabetes remission, we actually need much more data long-term with these anti-obesity medications to really understand that whether you can come off them or what happens. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about BMI, some of the patients, they can actually come off the medications and maintain their weight with the lifestyle and behavior therapy. So that is still possible. But some of the patients, they will require it long-term. Can I ask then about that lifestyle factor? Because I've had friends who have been using these medications and what they've found is they're obviously not hungry. Mm -hmm. So they're having, I don't know, crackers and cheese for dinner rather than eating something nutritious. Is that something that you've seen in, in patients as well? Yes, totally agree with that. So that's why they really need a close follow up with the dietitian as well, because you want to still them have nutritious, all the nutrition value should come from your food mm -hmm. and that should be there. The other thing is, Initially, these medications can cause appetite suppression, but eventually that will go away because the studies have shown that delay in the gastric emptying is not beyond 20 weeks, right? So if that is not the case and the appetite suppression goes away, does it mean the medication is not working? No, that yeah. is not true. It is still working through other mechanisms. And that's why you can't rely just on that. And that's why the behavior therapy comes in. You have to have small portion sizes. Dr. Bhatti with us today. Message from Warren saying, would this medication assist in reducing 30 to 40 kilos and do medical insurance companies cover the cost? Great questions. Okay, I'll, let you, I'll hand over to you, Doc. I think that is an excellent question that all of us are asking. So first of all, whether you can, how much weight can you lose on these medications? So first of all, that the one daily medication called Saxenda, the results have shown that you can lose up to 10% of your body weight. 
Then came along Ozempic, which is actually semaglutide. And the one which is licensed for weight loss is 2.4 milligram semaglutide, Vigovi. That has shown that you can lose 10 to 18% of your body weight. Monjaro, which is off license, but the surmount trials in obesity have shown that and you can lose 15 to 22% of your body weight. But remember, this is the trial data. Mm-hmm. Real world evidence is always different from that. And the second point, uh. is this covered by insurance? Well, actually, I've got a third point. Can you actually buy it anywhere at the moment anyway? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so there's a worldwide shortage of the stock because it's so popular. And for the right reasons, remember, we did not have anything to treat obesity. And now we have these medications. I think we need more stock to actually help the patients. And that's where the problem is. But to be fair, you know, the insurance companies, they will have to eventually do something about it. Mm -hmm. At the moment, none of the insurances are covering it. But we are saying that obesity is a disease and you're not going to cover the medication for it. And that's where the goes back to the insurance companies. You know, if you look at the long term data with any of these medications, you are if you are going to save money for all the complications like diabetes, sleep apnea, PCOS, blood pressure, cholesterol, and even cancers, because obesity can cause cancer. Look at benefits that it will give you long term. And I think that's where the insurance companies need to look into. They need to keep up. And this is why it's been such a hot topic in the UK when you think about the millions, if not billions, this could be saving the NHS long term in the battle against obesity. Um, Thank you so much for your time today. Um, Really appreciate it. Um, We've had a number of messages asking about you and how to get hold of you. So if you (laughs) want to send me the word doctor, I will send you Dr. Bati's details, but she can be found there at Genesis Healthcare Centre, consultant endocrinologist. And I've just really enjoyed speaking to a doctor about this rather than just my friends in WhatsApp group saying where can you buy it so thank you so so no, much thank you so much for having it's me it's been an absolute pleasure as I said if you would like uh, Dr. Ahila's details just send me the word doctor and I will send that your way this content is for informational purposes only if you would like to seek medical treatment please contact a certified healthcare provider for personalised advice and diagnosis Talking Health this hour, this month is known as PCOS Awareness Month, Polycystic Ovary Syndrome. Affects an estimated 8 to 13% of reproductive age women, but according to the World Health Organization, around 70% of affected women remain undiagnosed worldwide. Raising awareness here and answering your questions because it is the commonest cause of anovulation and a leading cause of infertility with Dr. Yasmin Sana, consultant obstetrics and gynaecology. She specialised in advanced gynaecology imaging and early pregnancy complications at Cornish Hospital, which is part of the Seha Network and the Pure Health Group. She's joining us live from your clinic. Thank you, doctor. How are you? Thank you very much, Helen. I'm very well. Thank you. Well, thank you for being with us. And I think shedding a bit of light on a, a issue that is much... Well, I find it very confusing, to be honest, because people can have different symptoms that get grouped together and it's used as a bit of an umbrella term, PCOS. So I'd love it if you were OK to give us your definition and, and explain exactly what we're talking about today. Yes, yeah. So it can be, um, as you said, a little bit confusing to understand uh, first of all, like you said, it's it's common. And um, when you perform scans, for example, in women for various reasons, um, as high as one in four women may have ovaries looking like polycystic appearance. Uh, but not all these women, they have polycystic ovarian syndrome. 
And uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, we should only be using this term for women who have associated symptoms. And this is where um, active management is generally required. Um, so asymptomatic women are very commonly have polycystic ovaries too. Mm-hmm. And of course, the symptoms could be very variable in the same women throughout their uh, reproductive years. And it could also be variable in, in different women. Um, it's something which unfortunately cannot be cured. But it certainly can be managed and it can be managed based on uh, different types of symptoms women have. For example, the common symptoms are irregular periods or no periods uh, and they can be managed. Um, Similarly, difficulty in conceiving is another uh, common issue. And it's one of those conditions that can actually be relatively easily managed um, and pregnancies can be achieved in women who have polycystic ovaries. And um, it has long-term implications if, of course, the, uh, the management is delayed or it remains undiagnosed. And then these are a little bit more worrying. For example, development of diabetes in later life, mm-hmm. um, cardiac conditions, high blood pressure, and um, even endometrial cancer. Well, can I come back to the symptoms? Because I w- I'm curious to know how a diagnosis is reached. Because exactly as you said, I had a scan um, number, probably about 10 or 15 years ago and was told that I had some cystic my ovaries. And she immediately said, well, you've got polycystic ovaries. And I thought, well, I haven't got any of the symptoms. I haven't got the, you know, hirsutism, you know, everything, everything else was, was fine. And it really scared me. I think I was only 25, 26. And she was like, well, I advise that you try and get pregnant as soon as possible. I was like, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, but, yeah. but there are symptoms that can be incredibly distressing. Um, yeah. You know, when we're thinking about... Um, you know, skin um, problems, sleeping, heavy and irregular periods. Um, yeah. And I think there, there, there does need to be more awareness around it. So w- when you are speaking to a client in clinic, a patient doctor, tell us a little bit about, I guess, your checklist or some of the questions you would be asking in order to ascertain that it is indeed PCOS so you can have a plan moving forward. Um, yes, the common symptoms um, and which actually... Uh, make them qualified for the diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome are uh, divided into three groups, essentially. The first one will be related to ovarian dysfunction, uh, which will be an ovulation or uh, irregular ovulation. And the clinical manifestation for that would be either irregular periods or no periods at all. Mm-hmm. Um, if, of course, that's not managed, it can result in difficulty in conceiving. Then we have the essential element of polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is um, hormone imbalance. And there is slight increase in the male hormone uh, concentrations in the blood. blood. And that um, manifests uh, in the form of excessive hair growth, acne. Um, and again, that's something that can be regulated and managed. We're going to go to the text line next. Um, joining us live from Corniche Hospital, Dr. Yasmin Sana, consultant obstetrics and gynaecology. Um, you can get in touch completely anonymously if you prefer. We've had a mum saying her 13-year-old daughter's been diagnosed with PCOS, irregular periods, heavy bleeding, it lasts up to four weeks. Very active with a health of healthy body. The doctors have prescribed synthetic hormones, which she's sceptical about. So really looking for a bit of advice there about a treatment plan. Um, someone's asking, can you still have a regular monthly cycle and still have PCOS? Um, and Janet saying, hi, both. Is it true that women with PCOS are at higher risk of developing obstructive sleep apnea? I have no idea. We'll be finding out in a few minutes. This content is for informational purposes only. If you would like to seek medical treatment, please contact a certified healthcare provider for personalised advice and diagnosis.
talking women's health now and marking PCOS Awareness Month with Dr. Yasmin Sana, consultant obstetrics and gynaecology at Cornish Hospital. Um, lots of people getting in touch with questions and concerns. And I think this really speaks to the fact of just how many women um, in the UAE have been told they've got PCOS, right, rightly or wrongly, depending on, on their actual diagnosis and symptoms. Um, can we talk about the best way to manage it before we go to the text line, doctor? What are some of the, the go-tos that you've got in your arsenal that you've, you've seen to be effective? Yeah, so uh, the the vital part of the management, and regardless of how old women are and what exactly the symptoms are, is the lifestyle management. The single most important thing is to uh, be more active physically and reduce the carbohydrate intake because the two main issues are excessive weight gain um, and difficulty in losing weight because um, there is reduced insulin sensitivity um, and uh, loss of even up to 5% weight can regulate ovulation, it can regulate the period and can actually improve the fertility. So this will be the key advice or the key point, especially to the young girls or women who are trying to conceive, is that work on your physical activity, may have a routine in your life, low carb diet, and you may not need to actually go on any medication. But of course, if that does not work as first line therapy, there are medical treatments that can help to regulate the periods, that can help women conceive. And um, another important thing is to have at least three or four periods a year to reduce the risk of having endometrial cancer in the long term. Um, and that can be achieved through um, giving simple hormonal medication as a course of five, six days um, to three to four times a year. Doctor, I've had a message here. My sister has been diagnosed with PCOS. She's got mild symptoms, but in order to control her weight, she's been prescribed metformin. Is it a safe medication to take long term? Uh, the answer, the straight answer to that is yes. Um, it is uh, an old drug which is used for women or patients generally with diabetes for a very long time, and it does increase your uh, sensitivity to insulin. So yes, it can be used, but of course it does not really replace the, um, like I said before, other measures. The most important one is the lifestyle modification. Um, to the text line, 4001, a message here saying, my 13-year-old daughter has been diagnosed with PCOS. The symptoms include irregular periods with heavy bleeding that last up to four weeks. She's active, healthy. The doctors here prescribe synthetic hormones, which I'm sceptical about. How do I go ahead with the treatment plan that will gradually subside her symptoms? From worried parent there. So I think, first of all, is the diagnosis of a teen girls with polycystic ovaries. One has to be very careful because... Um, it may or may not be associated with polycystic ovaries because young girls, they do commonly have irregular um, ovulation in the first few years. Mm -hmm. And uh, an ultrasound scan, generally uh, young girls will be transabdominal, which may not show the ovaries very clearly. So um, they sometimes I see that can be wrongly labeled as being polycystic, where the problem simply could be them being young, starting their periods and they're regulated over the years. In terms of treatment, yes, whether or not polycystic ovaries is the underlying problem um, it is okay and it's very reasonable to give them hormonal medication to regulate their periods and control their symptoms they might not need it for long term they might need it only for short term and their cycle sets in uh, naturally um, if a young girl is having prolonged episodes of very heavy uh, bleeding and this has been happening from the time when they started having the period it's also important to think about other causes that may uh, be responsible for this. Okay. So one needs to be thinking more widely about having, for example, very rare, but some blood disorders can result in that. 
So it's important to have a really holistic approach, basically, and make sure there's nothing missed otherwise. Thank you for that really good advice. Um, Janet's saying, is it true? No, I've never heard this before, but maybe you have. Is it true that women with PCOS are at higher risk of developing obstructive sleep apnea? Would that be related to weight potentially around the neck or is it yes. completely unrelated? No, no, no. It's not direct results of PCOS. But majority of women with uh, PCOS actually would be overweight of up to 80%. And it is linked, of course, with the being overweight or obese. Yeah. Okay. And no name on this one saying, can you have a regular monthly cycle and still have PCOS? Um, I wouldn't say PCOS. Uh, it would probably be PCO. Um, because like I said before, it's, it's, it's important to imagine this as a spectrum where women on one end of the spectrum may only have the polycystic appearance on the ultrasound scan, they may not have any symptoms. But women on the other extreme end of the symptoms may have all the symptoms. So yes, it's entirely possible that one has polycystic ovary appearance on ultrasound scan, but has completely normal cycle, regular cycle, no other symptoms. And it's probably because they are actually quite healthy and their normal weight. Mm -hmm. And if at any point this changes, they may start to have symptoms. Thank you so much for these insights. I think it's been really important to get some clarity across an issue that, as we said, is incredibly common, but is quite often misunderstood. And I think it's especially important to emphasise that if you are trying to conceive to be working with a doctor who's specialised in PCOS and understanding it um, and your goals um, is is really, really crucial. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Dr. Sana. Really appreciate your time. I'm going to let you get back to your busy clinic there at Corniche. Have a very, very have a good afternoon Thanks. ahead. Thank you so much. If you want to, Dr. Yasmin Sana's details, just send me the word doctor. I'll be very happy to send over her profile. This content is for informational purposes only. If you would like to seek medical treatment, please contact a certified healthcare provider for personalised advice and diagnosis. The parenting journey, it's an incredible, transformative, often frustrating and heartbreaking experience marked by milestones and memories. And as children, we, you know, we we mature and we venture into adulthood. But parents face a new chapter in life as well, the empty nest. It is a significant turning point that can evoke many emotions, but can bring change but also some opportunities, benefits as well. Uh, Mitra joining us today. She is the founder and CEO of The Wellbeing Sanctuary, a psychologist by profession who started out on her own education and subsequent business when her own son went to university overseas. So who better to talk to about emptiness syndrome? And of course, if you want to get in touch with any questions, concerns, or what, what helped you when you were going through this stage of life, you can get in touch and you can be completely anonymous if you wish on 4001. You've got the ARN Play app and you've got the WhatsApp too. Mitra, how are you today? I'm good. How about you? I'm well. It's lovely to have you with us. It's, it's, it's in my future. My kids are only six and eight, but I mean, I was emotional waving them off to school last week. Never mind yeah. waving them off to university. Can we start with your definition of empty nest syndrome? And, and as a psychologist, is it actually a clinical diagnosis? It can be. It can lead to a clinical diagnosis, but it is not a diagnosis. Uh, Having an empty nest means that basically for us mothers who are more attached to their kids, we have it more than the fathers because fathers already have a purpose in life and as if our purpose is taken away suddenly from us. Oh, I think that's a bit reductive. You know, I think women have other purposes than just their children. I, I told you, if we are very attached, 
with our kids and this is all that we have that our whole life uh, revolves around our child's schedule. Ah, okay. So this is what I was going to ask you. If some people are hit particularly hard when yeah. their children leave home, people. is that... Is, Okay, we'll we'll move on to that. I, w- I would love to hear though a little bit before we start talking about some of the the struggles, but also some of the opportunities and benefits. Tell us about your own experience of this, Mitra. How long ago yeah. was this, and, and how did it go for you? Uh, my son left home for his uni in two thousand fourteen, and before that, I personally believe I'm a very uh, self observant person, and I knew that I'm very attached. I was a homemaker. And I was very attached to my son. My husband has his own business, so he's very busy, always out, taking care of loads of other things. My whole life would revolve around my son. From the moment he would wake up, taking him to school, dropping him him there, and then after school activities, bringing him home, his homework, and that was my life. So before he was about to leave, like maybe two, three years before that, I anticipated. And I could see myself becoming that very depressed, dependent mother who would call up his son every day, mm-hmm. the, our son every day. I miss you. I well, miss you. Where are you? Why don't you call me? <laughs> Do you miss why, me? Why don't you send me your messages? Why don't you tell me how you are? And I could anticipate that I'm going to become like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was my fear. I don't want to become like that. I think, it's as you said, that's very observant. I think that self-awareness is actually very unusual especially if you then use that awareness to take some action to start future proofing yeah. yourself which it sounds like that is what Absolutely. you started doing so what Absolutely. unfolded from there Mitra? so that fear drove me to do something and have another purpose when my son wouldn't be my only purpose in life and that's where i started unfolding other avenues and see i started you know doing taking painting classes and then I, I saw that it's not for me. And I had some psychology background in the past. So then I started to explore different avenues, how I can enhance this and take it forward. When I started, I didn't have any, uh, let's say, uh, ultimate goal in mind. I just took one day at a time, mm-hmm. one course at a time, one client at a time. Finally, the road unfolded on its own without me trying very hard to get where I have to be. So what was it like when he left home? It was very painful, very, very painful. And having only one child, uh, as I said, my whole world would revolve around him and not having him at home, not having to do things for him. He doesn't need me as much anymore. And that was the saddest part. You know, when men go through the same stage, when they retire, Oh, that's so interesting. I think I think that I think about this a lot in terms of identity and purpose. Because when my dad retired, he didn't do it very well. <laughs> exactly, we yeah. go through the same stage. As if as a mom, I'm retiring now. Mm-hmm. So the retirement phase starts, and you have no other purpose in life, and then it really strikes you, and it can make you very very depressed, mm-hmm. low, and not having any motivation of life. Mm-hmm. So. This phase is going to come to, into every mom's life. No one is going to be spared of this. We can all take actions before we reach that stage. That's what we're going to be talking about next. We are going to go to the text line. If you've got any questions, any comments on the topic of empty nest syndrome, 
get in touch. You're more than welcome to be completely anonymous if you prefer. But Hanan saying, when they were small, I just wanted peace. It was relentless. Now I have the peace. I want them back. It's a paradox. I'm pleased for them that they're independent and so grown up, but I miss having them around. Although if they didn't have the guts or inclination to leave home, I'd wonder what I did wrong. So that's very astute, Hanan. Let us know if you've got any questions on this or indeed you're struggling. Also had messages about what you did when your kids left home, whether it was for university or going out to work in terms of identity, in terms of hobbies, friendship, work. Loving your messages on 4001. We are talking empty nest. Helen Farmer with you on Dubai I 103.8 and we are with you through until five. We're talking about empty nest syndrome. It is that time of the year where bags are being packed, dorms are being uh, opened up and we're we're waving goodbye to the young people in our lives. Uh, Mitra is the founder and CEO of the Wellbeing Sanctuary. She's a psychologist, but actually started out expanding her education and starting her own business when her son left about nine years ago. And now it sounds like you're on a bit of a mission to help people in this stage of life. Can I ask you, why do we find transitions so challenging as humans? And we're using empty nest syndrome as an example here, Mitra. Right. So if you notice, or you are a parent yourself, uh, we have no schools for parenting. <laughs> we have no handbooks for parenting. We have no guides for parenting. We just learn parenting as we get into that role. And uh, we learn by making mistakes, right? And whatever we thought is right, And that becomes the right for us for the rest of our lives. But we don't grow up. We don't mature Mm -hmm. psychologically. We do not mature as our children are maturing and growing. So we're not adjusting as they they adjust. Or a parenting style perhaps isn't adjusting as they they get older. At different stages of their life, they require different styles of parenting. But we are doing the same kinds as we started with. And nothing changed. So when they are about to leave home, they have grown up, they have matured and they don't need us any longer as they used to when they were younger. We feel lost. I heard a really good analogy the other day, which was talking about kids getting older and especially as they go into the teens, you know, instead of needing a manager, they need a coach. And that kind of rang really true with me that, you you know, you're not perhaps running around as much as you were and, you know, micromanaging everything, but you're there to encourage them. And I think Hanan's message earlier saying, you know, something would be wrong if my kids weren't confident and mature enough or have the guts and inclination to to leave home. Like that's, a, that's your role as a parent, to my mind, is to, you know, raise young people who are kind and motivated and independent. It would be a bit strange if they were like, do you know what, mum and dad, I'm just going to hang with you for the next 30 years. That would be a big no in that my book. That would be really strange <laughs> and no parent would want that. And if they did, they should probably be sitting in your clinic. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about some of the benefits, I guess, of this of this age and this stage of life. You know, you, you yourself started a business when, when your son left home. And we've had a number of messages um, from people kind of sharing their stories, really. Uh, Bev says, thank you for addressing this. I've just recently realised that I've been accommodating others for 30 years. I've had a jolt when I saw myself in the shop mirror. 
body shape has completely changed. I fantasized about working less and having time for myself. I have it now and I've got no idea what to do. My biggest problem was job. So I focused on that. I've got a promotion, changed my finances significantly. I went on Instagram to see what people my age wear. I've joined a weightlifting club in Dubai for women only. I've taken photography classes, calligraphy classes, started sea kayaking. Basically, I'm trying everything to see what sticks. I have remained quite strict about family time. I've got a Zoom once a week with our daughter and regular trips planned. I see my girlfriends at least twice a month for brunch and a game of cards and dinner. And I love this. I think... um, It's beautiful. Bev, we've also had a message that's perhaps one you can help with. Um, No name saying, I'm not coping with emptiness syndrome. Menopausal, my husband's not around. He's either at work talking about or or sleeping. So I feel like I'm on my own a lot. Um, Are there any groups of women of a similar age or life stage? Right. So uh, I personally, I have gone through all of that. Understanding how it feels to be there, and with the skills that I acquire to help others, I have created a Facebook group which is called Menopause Champions. And anyone can look up and join the group if they want to. Uh, I, every month I organize a group meeting where I share tips, do workshops for free for women who, can, who are in the stage and who need the support and the help. Um, and, and otherwise, I really suggest that people should voluntarily, proactively seek help if they are unable to cope and not wait for a serious crisis moment to come upon them. Mm -hmm. Okay, we've had a number of messages um, on this topic. We're going to go to the text line after half past. Um, So if you do have anything that you want to address, you're more than welcome to get in touch. Didi saying, I felt this just today. Both kids now in high school, which means they're more independent and I don't need to manage everything. I volunteer part-time, so I need to pivot into something really soon so I'm kept productively busy. We are going to talk about some of the challenges, the opportunities. We haven't even touched on the impact it can have on a marriage. We're talking emptiness syndrome and what started off as a conversation about, you know, kids leaving home and it's turned into identity and marriage and purpose. And joining us now is Mitra. She is the founder and CEO of The Wellbeing Sanctuary. She is a psychologist by profession and started out expanding her own education and subsequent business when her own son went to university overseas almost 10 years ago. Can we talk about marriage? We've seen a big spike in divorces in those later years. Is empty nest playing a role in that? Possibly. You know what happens is Uh, the problems or the lack in the relationship was always there. But there was some distraction. (laughs) The distraction was the child. And when they leave home, the problem again, which was always there, becomes the center of our focus. So apparently since 1990, the rate of so-called grey divorce, which is couples separating past the age of 50, has doubled. And researchers are predicting instances tripling by 2030. Factors contributing to a so-called grey divorce, finances, emptiness syndrome and retirement. You touched on this earlier in terms of... And honestly, my my parents are thankfully fine, Babs and Dave, all good. But when my dad retired, um, he... My dad wasn't a workaholic as, as such, but he loved work. Found a huge amount of, you know, identity and validation and socialising and just really enjoyed what he did. And then that came to an end and they moved countries. And mum was like, he's just always here, <laughs> you know, making lunch. And he'd be like, hmm, just, just, have it, just contributing on topics that he'd never really um, had anything to say about before. And as a result, 
out of boredom and, you know, nice to have some money as well. He started working again. Mm-hmm. So my dad now, bless him, he's running the town hall down the road. He um, has a van and he's de- delivering prescription medication to people who can't get out of their homes around northeast England. So he's what my mum calls drug running. So he's, <laughs> deliver- he's delivering all their medications. And he bought a old Land Rover that he's done up and he's using it as a wedding car. So my so dad will... found a purpose. Yeah, and he's, he's great. He, you know, he loves meeting the couples that he's driving yeah. to church. He loves having a little chat with the groom and giving them a bit of life advice on their way to church. And as a result, they haven't succumbed to the to the grey divorce. But my mum, you know, also worked all her life, and she's now, since I guess retiring, is is again yeah. absolutely packed full of interests. And I think that identity thing is is really crucial. Identity and having a purpose. So let's talk a little bit because we've had a message. We've had a number of messages. My goodness, I'm going to try and get through as many as we can. Actually, um, Mira saying, um, I think this has been one of the most brutal times in parenting. It happened quite suddenly, didn't even have time to prepare my brain. One minute, my youngest was here. Two weeks later, she got an offer, didn't look back. I was so excited for her. I wanted to be successful, but was truly heartbroken too. My whole world just changed instantly. No running around, no school runs, no sport events. I say brutal because I couldn't show her how I was feeling. I was elated for her, but I had to keep this black hole hidden. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I think I cried nonstop for about two months. Someone would ask me how she was and I would burst into tears. In fact, it happened at the doctor and my doctor suggested something to give me a hand. It was HRT and it did help, but I don't know if it was the HRT or perhaps the fact that I realised I needed to dig myself out of this hole. So I started doing some new things, went back to the gym, met up with more friends and I start a little sideline to keep me busy and just help with the bills. Me going through this just highlighted how little people know about this stage of life. Yeah. I, I personally and truly believe that we all can thrive when we have a purpose in life. So I re- encourage parents, whether it's the mother or the father, whoever is the primary caregiver in the family, to be proactive, let's say a couple of years before you know that your child is going to leave home and to start to take measures so that you find another purpose in life other than being useful to your kid. Dee saying, I'm five years plus since the youngest child left home and it's looking like they might lose their job and come back to Dubai. I'm dreading it. <laughs> the boomerang, the boomerang. Yeah, I went back home for a little while. My mum was just amazed that I could suddenly stack a dishwasher after after being independent. Um so you mentioned earlier your menopause group that you've set up. I've had a message, um, no name on this one, saying, my best friend is going through menopause and she's just breathing fire. You're right. Has turned into a very negative person. What can I do or yeah. say? So menopause, what it does is it aggravates all latent repressed emotions. So this person of yours, this friend of yours has a lot of repressed anger which needs to be addressed properly, professionally. You can't help her, but professionals can help her eventually to release her anger in a healthy way and get over that so she doesn't need to breathe fire every day. It's funny, I've heard so many people talking about the physical sides of menopause, but the, the, the emotional and psychological side, and anxiety is a big, a big one, a really big one. Um, but yeah, this, this, I, this anger. And we see an awful lot of women just absolutely putting a bomb under their life and going, do you know what, I've put up with this nonsense for long enough. I haven't got the time. I haven't got the patience. I haven't got the inclination anymore. You're out. I'm doing this. Yeah. 
deal with it. It was always there. It's just that the hormonal change aggravates it. Message from Chrissy saying, Hi both, it's very hard and everyone messaging has my sympathy. My son went off to university on the other side of the world last October and I was an absolute wreck in the weeks leading up to it. Then he went and it wasn't as bad as I thought. What made it so much easier is the fact he's happy and that's what's most important to me. The uni terms go quickly and when he's at home, it's like he's never been away. Um, An anonymous message here, 4001, saying, Kids haven't even left home yet, but it won't be long. The thought of them leaving is like a knife to my heart. They're interning now and some days when they leave, I hide in the toilet and have a little cry. My husband doesn't understand and looks at me as if I've got two heads. Menopause and ageing parents, its an interesting um, point, uh, back home are also in the mix and I feel like I'm losing it all. Now, you make it sound very simple. You've got such a soothing voice. It's like, just find your purpose. Easier said than done, Mitra. Tell us a little you know, it, bit it, about it, it how... Is, it is not easy. It is not easy because when you're starting... Like I, as I said, I was a homemaker. Mm -hmm. So for me to know what's going to be my purpose in life, it was not written there in black and white that I would go and find it one day. I had to go through years and years of discovering myself finally to know what I really want and what gives me purpose in life. And it's it's never going to be easy easy for anyone who is starting now, but we have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. What are the other benefits, I guess, to having... Having an empty nest all of a sudden. I mean, obviously, for a lot of people, it can coincide with retiring, um, which, you know, we're seeing more and more people retiring, living longer here in the UAE, which is great. Um, So I guess that time of self-discovery, what else have you noticed with clients in terms of embracing this stage of life? What we find difficult to embrace is the lack of responsibility, the freedom, the independence. We need to learn how to enjoy these times of our life because we never had it before. But now that we have it, we don't know how to use it. I wanted to ask you finally, um, if someone is really struggling, and, it, and we've had a number of messages where I've thought, wow, you know, that you, you're really going through it. And sometimes it is situational and this, you know, this too will pass and it will be a sense of adjustment. But for some, it can perhaps be a trigger into something that is more serious. What are some of the signs that you might need to seek out some professional help if this perhaps is the accumulation of some problems or it's been a trigger of some mental health issues that have been going on for a long time? A mental health issue is when you see that coming out on your face, right? But what about mental fitness? If we had been mentally fit, we would be able to deal with this much better than someone who has never ever looked into mental fitness. Thank you so much for your time today, Mitra. For anyone who wants to find out more about you, about your menopause champions, what's the best way of getting in touch? Uh, Facebook. Uh, Menopause Champions is the group over there. They can just uh, become a member. They can get to me through my business, The Wellbeing Sanctuary. Thank you so much. If you want details, you can just send me the word nest and I'll send you that. Thank you so, so much. You're listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high-quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken. Joining us live on the line from the German Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Katrin Jan is our expert of the hour. Lots to talk about and taking your questions to on 4001 on the app and the WhatsApp. How are you, Dr. Katrin? Very well, Helen. How are you? I am really well. Apart from, had a couple of a couple of upsetting messages on the text line. A few people worried about their pets, and including one whose pet has gone missing. So I wondered if we oh. could speak about that first. Now, this is from Ashley, who's 
Um, sent the poster as well. Buddy's been missing for a num- almost a week now. Um, I went missing, and let's just say, actually, in case anyone has seen Buddy, um, around the Jebel Ali shooting club area in the desert behind there. Apparently went off chasing a gazelle. Um, so they're trying everything to try and get Buddy home and you know, trying to get as many eyes out there and just get the word out as much as possible. And she's saying, could you please ask Dr. Catron for any advice? Is there an average time for someone to turn in you know, a dog that they found? We've searched the desert for days and think someone must have picked him up. So... I'm sure you must get panicked messages from pet parents. Unfortunately, quite frequently, Dr. Catherine, what tends to be your advice in these situations? Yeah, it's it's so sad, isn't it? And I can just imagine how worried um, people are if their pets go missing. And the situation's a little bit different if it's a cat or a dog. With dogs, it's usually much more difficult. Um, cats oftentimes will go into hiding and may stay hidden for for you know a number of days or weeks and before they sort of find their way back home but with dogs and it's often unfortunately those dogs that follow this kind of predation instinct you know they chase something um, and then unfortunately they get disoriented or maybe get lost um, and they may also from the chase be physically exhausted um there's no real kind of hard and fast rule for how long it might take for them to come home again. Um, the more people that can go out, the better. It's possible that the dog might be scared um, and may have found sort of a hiding place, perhaps in a shaded area, under bushes, anywhere that um, provides some shelter. So any of those places would probably be good places to look for. Um, and just bear in mind that, you know, they might be quite scared and fearful at that time and might be actually choosing to hide. So we often put cameras up so you can actually we've tracked cats like this. We've used night vision cameras before. If we found a place that we think um, that animal might be, we've put night vision cameras up and put some food out and then had a look back um, on the camera to see you know, if they perhaps come out when it's cooler during the night and there are perhaps less. Uh, less noises around all that sort of thing but yeah I know it's it's it's, a scary one it is it happened to a friend of ours recently um and I should say not that this makes any difference but I thought it was an interesting aspect incredibly well-trained dogs in terms of recall being responsive I mean I've never seen anything like it um and they were in the desert and, and one of them went off was startled by something went off and was found about three days later and had been basically found at a camel farm. And this guy had been looking after um, her, you know, overnight and, you know, just simply hadn't understood about, you know, microchips and, and getting getting the, the pet back. So if anyone does find an animal that you think might be a missing or lost pet, what should you be doing in terms of the, you know, the, the, the finder rather than that rather than the seeker? You know, is it a case of going straight to a vet? Is there anything we can do that's available here in the UAE to help? Yeah, so microchips is absolutely the first thing to do. So unfortunately, in the UAE, we don't have what we call a central national database. So many countries do have that. In the UAE, we have a number of kind of independently run different smaller databases. And obviously, all the veterinary clinics have their own database. So when we register your pet at the clinic, we will always make sure that we get their microchip number and that that's registered on on our system, essentially. So that if we do find a lost pet, that's the first thing we do. If they're microchip, we 
pop the microchip number into our database. And if we're very lucky, we get a match with the owner. Um, and then we also ring around all the other veterinary clinics um, in Dubai. Obviously, there's the Dubai municipality that hopefully keeps a record. Well, they do. You know, they must do keep a record of the microchips. Um, and then just trying to use social media as much as possible. Um, obviously, you know, all the groups and things like that. But I would say for sure a veterinary checkup because we don't know what's happened to that pet. So as you mentioned, your friend's dog got startled. They may have run for a long, a long distance or for a long period. So they might have some heat exhaustion. They might have sore pads or sore feet. They might be otherwise hurt. So I think for sure a veterinary checkup and at the same time get the microchip read and then try and spread the microchip number far and wide um, and pictures and all that sort of thing helps as well. But yeah, it's it's scary times oh, for it sure. Is. It is. It's a member of the family. So just lastly, Buddy um, missing, last seen behind the Jebel Ali shooting club in that patch of desert there. Microchip number, I'm going to be testing my, uh, my, eye, my vision here. Hang on one second. Looks like 11800. So it is microchipped. So if you do find Buddy, he looks like he's got wearing... Um, Wearing white socks, lovely, lovely desert mix, big ears, dark muzzle, white socks. And if you if you want to message me with the word dog, I can send you the poster if this is ringing any bells. 4001, you've got the ARN Play app and you've got the WhatsApp too. Dr. Katrin Yarn is joining us, a real expert when it comes to obviously the medical side of veterinary practice, but also the behavioural side. One of the best brains in the business here in the UAE. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. On hand to help this hour, Dr. Katrin Yarn from the German Veterinary Clinic. If you've got any questions for her, this is your chance. It can be health and it can be behaviour and we've got it all coming in for you. Before we get to the text line, Dr. Katrin, is it okay to kiss your pets? I'm seeing conflicting reports from various experts. And when I did a little poll around our office earlier was, do you kiss your pets? And I was like, yes, all the time. On the head, (laughs) on the nose, kiss their paws. So what do we need to be aware of? Oh, I mean, I think, yeah, it's absolutely okay to kiss your pet. However, I would just be cautious and just use common sense when it comes to kind of general hygiene measures. Um, I mean, yes, pets absolutely can transmit zoonoses to us. We know that. But the truth of the matter is that that's pretty rare. And I think as long as our pets are healthy um, and as long as we are you know, just taking normal precautions, washing hands, washing our faces, perhaps after we've given them a kiss. Um, I think, you know, I think that's absolutely fine. Um, (laughs) Research does show that, you know, the human-animal bond is so beneficial to human health, and I think that potentially outweighs the perhaps slightly smaller risk of of zoonoses or catching a disease from your pet because you're cuddling them or giving them a kiss. So I'd say go for it. Give them a kiss. Just no tongues. Okay, Dr. Catron. And we've got a message here from Andrea saying, Hi both. Our beautiful old lady cat died earlier this year at the ripe old age of 20. And the last month I've been craving a new cat and ideally one to rescue. There is a one-year-old male Persian I've seen post online. I'm a bit taken with. My husband doesn't get it as he's a bit quirky looking, but I think he's adorable. I haven't had a Persian before. I've had a long haired cat though and I'm used to grooming, but what else should I be aware of? I want to inform myself as much as possible before making a commitment. Andrea, great question. Dr. Katrin, can we talk Persians? What do we need to know? Yeah, we can. Well, and firstly, I really would love to applaud this lovely listener for, you know, 
know, going out and getting the information that they need to know before they get any type of pet. That's just such a commendable thing to do. But with Persians, I think there are two things to think about. One is the fur and the coat. So yes, that potentially needs a little bit of extra care. Um, and us helping our cats to groom is actually a really lovely way of bonding with them. So what we don't normally recommend is um, to give cats lots of showers or baths or use scented shampoos or even unscented shampoos. Cats are really great at um, taking care of themselves most of the time. And it's really important to them to smell like themselves, which sounds a little bit crazy, but they, they produce pheromones. And when they groom themselves, they cover themselves in a very sort of unique personal smell that's very important to them in terms of safety, feeling okay, feeling happy, feeling comfortable, all that sort of thing. But what we do absolutely encourage is using very gentle brushes to help especially our long-haired pussycats um, to make sure that they don't get matted. Um, and, you know, sometimes you, you might need to sort of perhaps clip the fur a little bit around their back ends to make sure that all stays clean and hygienic. So that's the one side of things. And then the second uh, thing I would think about, if it truly is a Persian cat, so if we've got a cat that's got a shorter nose than normal and we've got those skin folds um, just below the eyes and across the nose, then sometimes we, we do need to consider um, hygiene around those facial folds and eyes. So getting some gentle wipes to kind of clean inside those facial folds, perhaps cleaning the eyes um, daily or every other day, that will really help them from a from a hygiene point of view. And I think the final thing that's just popped into my head is um, if the if the Persian cat really is very sort of snub nose, if they have got a very short nose, we might need to consider that if you ever consider flying with the cat. So if you ever want to relocate back to your home country and you want to travel by air, Persian cats are regarded as brachycephalic breeds or snub nose breeds. And that can become a little bit tricky in regard to times of the year when they can travel. Um, maybe not all airline carriers will will take them. So there's a little bit, bit of thought to have had around that. Brilliant. So those are the three main things I think about. Thank you, Dr. Katrin. I knew you'd be the right person to ask. And staying with Persians, as she's been in touch saying, we've got an eight-year-old Persian cat who's got a lot of eye discharge. Do we need to take it to the vet? Is this a, is this a common thing we see in this breed? Yeah, and again, it's because of that slightly shorter nose. Um, it means that um, the eyes often sort of bulge out a little bit more. We perhaps don't have good drainage from the eyes down to the nose. So you've got a, a, what we call a nasolacrimal tear duct. So it's a, a tear duct that goes from the eyes to the nose. And if in short nose breeds, if that is kind of smaller or a little bit clogged up, then you can get more discharge from the eyes. If the discharge is yellow or green, if the eyes are looking red, um, inflamed, if the cat is kind of blinking the eyes shut or looking uncomfortable in any way, then yes, that absolutely warrants a trip to the vet straight away. And Persian cats can be prone to having eye issues. So it's something that we need to be really careful about. Um, if the vet gives you the all clear and everything's fine, then daily maintenance with eye wipes and perhaps some lubrication, drops or gel um, is probably a really good way to kind of help maintain and, and keep on top of eye health for Persians. Hope that helps, Ashley. Let's let's stay with eyes. Uh, Therese has been in touch saying, Hi there, our new puppy Mo, mixed breed white fur, gets brown stains around mouth and below the eyes. There's so much advice online and products, but with varying reviews. What works? Any tips or product recommendations really welcome. Do wipes work? It seems like the easiest idea. We, do we see this in certain breeds? And I know it's going to depend on the contrast between the stain and the, the colour of the fur, but are certain breeds more prone to it? Or what's happening physiologically when we see staining such as this? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So um, I don't think that any breeds, any one breed is more prone than the other. However, we do see it more in some breeds. And exactly as you say, Helen, you know, in white breed dogs, those things show up absolutely more readily. So what we're actually looking at is what we call saliva staining or tear staining. And it's a pigment called porphyrin that's contained both in the saliva as well as in the tears and has this kind of red, rusty, browny um, type of color that stay, can stain the fur. So we'll see it a lot in dogs that perhaps have allergies and that lick their paws a lot or that lick the fronts of their legs or maybe lick their bellies because they're itchy um, and then that can cause this kind of reddish brown staining. Um, so the obvious thing is to make sure that we address the underlying cause so making sure that they're not itchy or that they're not licking um, their, their paws or other areas of their body you know because they've got an allergy or they are itchy. Um, there are a couple of antibiotic types that can get rid of that staining. However, that's not recommended because as soon as you stop the antibiotic, you know, the porphyrin comes back and you get the staining back again. Plus, we don't want to be using antibiotics um, where it's not indicated. So where we're not actually treating um, a, a bacterial infection that's sensitive to that antibiotic. So that's not a great option. Wipes can help sometimes, but the, the porphyrin is pretty stubborn um, and we really need to address the underlying cause, which is um, either the licking of the pores. And if it's around the eyes, as in this case, then that could be overflowing tears. And again, it might be because the tear ducts are blocked or because perhaps we have got an irritation in the eyes, maybe an allergy that's causing more tearing. So we need to get delved to the cause of the issue. Um, just using wipes is, is kind of a cosmetic way of addressing it, but it's not going to fix it in the long term. And we want to think about the animal's health. Dr. Katrin Yon with us. The text line is open. Um, message here from Colin saying we've got an eight-month-old Dachshund cross called Molly and wondering how much we should be walking her when the weather cools down. Is there a formula for working it out? Do we have a formula for Colin and Molly <laughs> on length, and length of dog walks? I wish we had a formula. I don't think we've got a formula. However, we've got a young dog and we've got a breed that we know is prone to... Um, uh, back problems, um, slip discs, that sort of thing, you know, is very common in Dachshunds. So we want to be really conservative with our walking, especially um, obviously not walking outside, but walking up and down stairs. So th those and jumping up onto things. So those are all things that we really want to be careful about. So if uh, if Molly wants to be sort of jumping up on the sofa or up on the bed a lot, then maybe providing her with some steps that she can easily access those areas would be really great. Um, and then in terms of walks outside, I would take it super easy, short walks, you know, a couple of times a day um, once the weather is cooler, lots of sniffing walks. So we don't want to be thinking about walking masses of distances. It's not about the physicality of the walk. It's more about, you know, what she's going to experience from the environment, all the sniffing that she can do, um, you know, that would be my advice really sniff we call them sniff walks where it which is basically where the dog is just allowed to kind of sniff and, and wander in, in a smaller area but I wouldn't be thinking about running jogging or walking for long distances with with a young dachshund little legs little walks and lots of sniffing all right I hope that helps Colin obviously I'd love to see a photo of Molly um you can send that in on the WhatsApp Dr Katrin Yarn is with us through until five o'clock today this is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer with ProPlan on hand to help this hour, Dr. Katrin Yarn from the German Veterinary Clinic. We can help with health issues, we can help with behaviour. And going to the text line now, 
I have no idea how you're going to respond to this question, Dr. Kutchin, but Jana's saying, we've got two sibling cats and they get on. We'd like to add a third boy. We also have two dogs. My worry is whether a third kitten could upset the dynamic. Is it excessive? We love all of our pets. Okay. Introducing another one. Exactly. I think we've kind of had this topic a couple of times before. I would say if the two cats that you currently have get on, then that is a massive win. If they're happy in each other's company, then that's perfect. And it might just be that a third cat might rock the apple cart there and um, might disturb the the harmony. As we know, cats are, are not socially obligate, so they don't need to form social relationships with each other in order to survive. Therefore, um, you know, it, it can be possible that they don't get on so well with each other. Um, so yeah, there's always a risk involved there. And, and I always feel if there are two cats that get on just fine, a third one might just upset that harmony. Keep us posted on what you decide. I'm expecting to see a photo from from Yana on the WhatsApp next week of a brand new kitten. (laughs) (laughs) Samira saying, "Um, I've had my cat about four months and he's the best thing that ever happened to me. But he can be quite loud overnight. He's a lap cat, very affectious, very good boy. Neutered, has a clean bill of health in the vet, but I need to find a nighttime solution. I follow all the tips of active play, then food, which lasts a few hours, but it's not enough. I'm thinking about getting him a friend. Um, in case he's lonely. So very vocal cat overnight, Dr. Kutchin. What comes to mind? Yeah, this is a great question and something I see really commonly. Um, It could be, so I'm going to make a a guess that this cat might be an Arabian male um, because they tend to just be a lot more vocal. Um, We see them you know, being vocal and athletic. And that's the reason we love them because they've got these big personalities, but obviously that can sometimes also be a little bit annoying, especially when it's in the night. Um, the other thing to remember is that cats are what we call crepuscular. So they're dusk and dawn active. So they, you know, usually would go out and hunt at night um, or certainly in as it gets dark or as it starts to become light. Um, so they are genetically programmed to be active in those hours. So that's another thing that's a little bit against us. Um, and and absolutely. So that, you know, playing and then feeding afterwards, all those things are perfect. But I might um, be inclined to have some things handy in the bedroom, um, hunting food puzzle toys that you could maybe throw for the cat to occupy them if they do start meowing at, at kind of ungodly hours in the night. I That's something I recommend to my clients a lot is to then just have something to actually um, satiate that need for perhaps predation or perhaps they are hungry. Cats eat 10 to 12 small meals throughout a 24-hour period. Wow. So it could be, yeah, that they're hungry at that time as well. And then, of course, always, 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 we have to consider the physical health as well. So I've, I have a couple of, of feline patients that meow in the night um, and some of these are pain-related or um, can be to do with high blood pressure. Less likely if it's a younger cat, but certainly if it's an older cat, those would be things that I would be thinking about. Um, Cognitive dysfunction, aka dementia in our dogs and cats, Um, pain, other medical issues. But yeah, I've got lots and lots of advice on this. So happy to help further if if necessary. I will send you 
The doctor's details. Um, Vinay's been in touch saying, Hi guys, I've got a 10-year-old cockapoo. He's relatively healthy, although gained three kilos recently without explanation. He's walked regularly, has a good diet. He does have a lump under his ear at the base, which has been checked by a vet who says it looks benign. Should I request any additional test? Is the weight gain cause for concern? Three kilos is, is a lot. Um, what, mm-hmm. what would that be a red flag for you? And what questions would you be asking Vinay and, and the cockapoo in question? Yeah, so I agree. Three kilos for a cockapoo is is a substantial amount. So I'd definitely be, you know, looking into this further. Um, we've also got a dog that's 10. So, that, you know, they are now seniors. Um, so a full health check, I think, would be on the cards anyway. And especially I would want to get the dog's thyroid gland checked. So dogs can suffer from underactive thyroid glands, also known as hypothyroidism. Um, and obviously that can lead to weight gain. But there are other things as well, other endocrine diseases such as Cushing's disease um, that can cause weight gain. So there are a number of, of medical things that I'd be looking for. Um, thinking about sort of the other side of it, the coin management, we have just gone through the summer. So perhaps they have had a slightly more sedentary lifestyle. I'd also be looking at diet because now might be a, a time to change diet, you know, as they reach those kind of senior years, they're probably not burning as many calories anymore, their metabolism might slow down. So we might need a more senior age appropriate diet that has perhaps less calories um, in there. And then also, I want to be looking make, for and making sure that we're not feeding any treats, high calorie treats, human tidbits, anything like that. There can sometimes be hidden hidden calories all over the place. So keeping a little food diary and just making sure that we ha- actually aren't loading up on calories inadvertently somewhere. But yeah, I, I would do a health a, a vet check first. Absolutely. Dr. Katrin, do dogs, much like us, get a bit of middle age spread? You know, do they get a bit thick around the middle as they get older? Um, I mean, I think it's definitely to do with metabolism slowing down, perhaps not being quite as active maybe as they are when they're younger. Um, So, yes, as they get older, we do need to consider diet and we do need to consider weight gain for sure. Um, But I would also be thinking medical, like, is there something perhaps endocrine, anything hormonal going on here that's um, that's contributing to the weight gain? But, yeah, just like us, you know, <laughs> lifestyle changes happen. Yeah. Do they, do they go through the menopause if they haven't been spayed? You know, are we seeing those kind of end of life hormonal changes as well in animals? Am I taking this I too far? I have absolutely <laughs> no idea, Helen. <laughs> There you go. A bit of homework for you for next time we chat. Do dogs go through the menopause? We'll find out in a couple yeah. of weeks, I'm sure. Um, we've had a message from um, Seema. She's got, got a very old and confused cat and requires a litter tray um, indoors and several around more now because of the accidents. Uh, hate the smell of poo as soon as we open the front door. Is there a litter tray or, um, or that masks odour or something I can do because I could smell it as soon as I get in the apartment? Yeah. Anything you'd advise here? Oh, it's a big topic, isn't it? Litter trays. Um, So it's actually one of my favourite topics. I love talking about litter trays, bizarrely. yeah so with an older cat there are definitely some things that we need to be thinking about um they might not be quite as mobile um so having more litter trays larger litter trays perhaps litter trays that don't have such a high edge or lip for them to get into um those are all things that can help in terms of making sure that they toilet in the litter tray and not outside of the litter tray um Unfortunately, I wouldn't really recommend any massive kind of odour masking, either litter or other sort of 
you know, toppers that you can put in the litter tray, just because sometimes those strong smelling odors can be aversive to cats and it might make them not want to use the litter tray so much anymore. So really just cleaning, clean, clean, clean as much as you can, scoop, you know, clean the litter trays out completely at least once a week, maybe even twice. Um, but having, it's usually to do with the size. So the optimal size of a litter tray for cats is one and a half times the length of the cat from the, their nose to their tail base. Mm. And if you think about some of these really kind of big Arabian Mao cats, that is big. It means they need a big litter tray. And the reason for that is if you've ever watched a cat go to the toilet, um, they do this, you know, huge dance um, before they before they toilet. So they'll kind of circle and dance and dig and make sure they get exactly the right spot. And if the litter tray is too small and they can't do this little dance and routine, it might make them want to toilet outside of the litter tray. So yeah, number of litter trays, making the access really easy, making it as comfortable as possible for them, and then just hygiene, scoop, scoop, scoop. But I literally could talk for hours about litter trays. That's, yeah. We so can, there we go. We can do a separate podcast for, for <laughs> some specialist listening. Dr. Kachanyan, we've run out of time. We haven't run out of questions. So anyone that got in touch this afternoon, I will put into the file for next week. Wishing you and the team all the very best. Dr. Kachanyan, you can be found at the German Veterinary Clinic. Um, what's the best place to find you online? because you've got some great resources on your Instagram and the website as well. Yeah, so you can find me at drkatrin underscore vet or you can also find my online business Trinity Vet Behaviour both on Instagram. I have a Facebook group which is the Pet Behaviour Community. You can also find Trinity and myself on Facebook. Um, you can find us on YouTube. Um, you can also find me on TikTok for my sins. So yeah, you can and you can find the German Veterinary Clinic on all of those channels as well. Thank so, you yes. so, so much Dr. Katrin Jan from the German Veterinary Clinic. If you want her details, send me the word vet and I will send you those links links. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.